RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Season 4, Episode 8. David Gerald Memo, To Seek Out New Life, October 23rd, 1986. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Hey, thanks for joining us again this week, Star Trek fans, all you background fans, Star Trek historians, you canonistas, I say that lovingly, <laughs> and of course, especially our Trekophiles, spelled with an F. Listen, we have a pretty expansive topic for you today, from a, all based on a document that you can see, as always, right on our Facebook page, The Trek Files, a document from 1986, um, still as relevant today as it was then, and all about how to write Star Trek and indeed science fiction. Hey, listen, I've got another special guest this week, so take a listen to this sample, find the document, and then come right back for today's show. Let's make a scientific assumption that the rate of change in our science and in our culture will continue to accelerate. Indeed, even the rate of scientific acceleration will continue to accelerate. As a result, human evolution will be accelerated, and in the next few hundred years, we should begin to see new forms of humanity. I see several possibilities for new forms of humanity. Genetic reconstruction, genetic redesign, biological reconstruction, biomechanical prostheses, synthetic humans, and computer brain implants. Well, that's a little on the mind-bending side, isn't it, Trekophiles? Um, this was a memo from David Gerald in the early, early roots stages of brainstorming what would become Next Generation. And we're in 1986. It's a wonderful snapshot. But we're talking about what we can do besides... You know, bumpy-headed aliens, uh, human actors, um, the aliens of the week. What we can really do to get into the diversity of life that may really be out there to seek out new life. And I thought, who better to talk about this with me than our friend Andre Baranist. Hello, Larry. Hey, good to have you back. And everybody, you should know, of course, that Andre came to Star Trek. Well, he was a fan but came to Star Trek as the science advisor starting Season 7 of Next Generation, fulfilled that obligation even as he, over the years for all the series, uh, became a freelance writer, then staff, co-producer on Enterprise, and then beyond Star Trek, a uh, consulting producer on Cosmos, which, you know, hardcore science, um, was a developer and co-executive producer on Mars, and the last couple years, heading into the new season, co-executive producer on The Orville <laughs> Indeed. We had a l- great chat last time talking about the role of science and the science consultant on Star Trek and in, and in that dynamic of TV itself. But here's a chance. Um, we talked a little bit about some of the documents that um, Rick Sternbach and Michael Kuda did to kind of lay it out, lay out some ideas. Here's David Gerald kind of brainstorming when you've got the space and time to do it, mm-hmm. right? Like not in the deadline craziness. <laughs> Uh, when you're, things are up front and kind of laying out some blue sky ideas. So what struck me reading this, Andre, was a lot of these areas and topics Star Trek in its various forms did get to, as well as other science fiction. Yeah, very much. And, you know, David was uh, extremely prescient and uh, obviously helped shape Star Trek the next generation to a degree that may, many fans may not appreciate. He was uh, he was there 
uh, with Gene Roddenberry and D.C. Fontana pretty much from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, what strikes me about this particular memo is the fact that we have come so much closer to making most, if not all, of these ideas that David was playing around with uh, a reality. Uh, there are brain implants um, that are being used today to allow people who are paralyzed, for example, to control robotic limbs with their minds. Mm. There are implants that help control the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, um, augmenting uh, human memory uh, with a chip that could uh, potentially be implanted in the brain is, is certainly on the horizon, manipulating um, uh, embryos, fetuses in the womb. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the genetic level, is something that is possible. I'm not sure if it's being done. Clearly, there are huge ethical implications right. and and challenges uh, to that kind of um, technology, and uh, a lot of pushback from people in uh, not only religious communities but bioethicists. and And I think that that's more than appropriate. You know, when you start messing around with the genetics <laughs> of an unborn child, you are really you are really crossing a line into uh, into uh, into pretty dangerous territory. You, you don't have to have fought a secret eugenics wars in the nineties, no, to appreciate exactly right <laughs> the and, dangers there. And of course, that's you know one of the great things about Star Trek is you can explore those ideas in a fictional world set four hundred years in the future, where these things are a reality and have real world consequences. So I'm, I, I was very pleased uh, to see this memo from David, which showed that, you know, from the very beginning of Next Gen, they were thinking about these kinds of things. And, and of course, one of the most striking, you know, um, ideas that uh, you can you can draw out of this is, is the notion of the Borg, the cyborgs. Well, there you go. And I think David was, was looking at this in a more benign way, um, you know, as a way of, you know, augmentation of, humans who would still have a sense of their own individual identity. And I think it was might have been Maurice Hurley who wrote that original episode mm-hmm. that, that introduced the Borg, where uh, that uh, the, those cybernetic augmentations were taken all the way to the point of destroying individual <laughs> identity, well, it, pulling, pulling you into a hive mind. I was going to say, yeah, the, the concept married married the cybernetic implants with the yeah, hive mind collective yeah, consciousness. Exactly. Well, all of those, you know, those modern-day either current or, or close to being current yeah. um, applications um, – the, even the medical, you know, the beneficiaries of uh, uh, patients and, and people who are afflicted and all that, all those benign reasons, all you talked about the, the dark side of um, yeah. manipulation. They can all go that, that direction. Sure, yeah. Right? They don't well, have technology. to just stop with, once you, once you figure out how to split an atom, yeah. you, can, you can power planter, you can yes. blow the planet up, one of the two. I mean, it, everything it is. It is always a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. Every technology that we've created um, that I can think of, has uh, you know positive, beneficial um, potential and and great destructive power. So your example of splitting the atom is uh, you know is 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 classic. Uh, that was something that uh, we didn't know how to do a uh, hundred years ago, and it became clear in the nineteen twenties and thirties that there was a hidden power inside atoms when you know with the discovery of radioactivity and and um, x-rays and so forth and uh, you know H.G. Wells the famous 
English science fiction writer who wrote War of the Worlds and The Time Machine and many other classics really kind of set the stage for all of the hard science fiction to come, including Star Trek. Uh, he proposed uh, atomic bombs in, uh, in uh, 1913 or 14. Uh, it was clear to him that mm-hmm. there was an energy here. And, uh, yes, if you unlock that energy, you can do great things. You can power a city. You can power a ship. Who knows what else? But you could also potentially create uh, a horrible weapon. And, yes, in fact, we've, we've done both things with, uh, with uh, the power inherent in, uh, in the atom. We're, we're, we're bridging worlds here. We're talking about being an audience and considering these just as, as residents of the modern world. Uh, you mentioned bioethicists, which is yes. a whole field to debate those, hopefully on the front end, before right. the genie's out of the bottle. Yeah. But then we've also got the hat here of just being a poor schmuck TV writer, <laughs> <laughs> trying to do drama, yes. right? Yeah. And here's, I mean, it was such a pivotal turn for not just Star Trek, but TV science fiction, science fiction in general, TV science fiction, the literary trends of the 80s, yeah. right, uh, have already yielded... Um, Cyberpunk and everything yes. that right, so there's that was an emerging literary trend that hadn't uh, completely well maybe cinematically but not completely got to TV and right. start and next generation don't know if they realized the time was going to be able to pioneer this new wave that would be the big sci-fi boom of the nineties right? right and wind up even competing with Star Trek and all the different shows that spun off so it's it's a fertile ground for storytelling yeah. that he's kind of laying out here and a lot of these ideas star trek itself over the if not next generation other iterations mm-hmm. uh got to yeah but what is what just as a writer if you're sitting there in 85 and you're thinking your your background is um <laughs> the original star trek series yeah. and then the the most recent movies have been star wars well, and blade 2001 yeah. i mean blade runner yeah. was kind of the cutting edge new yeah. there yeah but um and terminator had been just out with uh, or it was about to be yeah yeah it was right in that time too right um close encounters and close encounters yeah. right i was thinking of the life forms of terminator being uh the shape-shifting ability the technology to display right, it right right yeah terminator that, that two, just yeah. in a few years they'd bring in with odo on ds9 but yeah. just the it seemed like a very exciting time where the science and the pop culture and the popular mind, and then being able to translate that into dramatic stories. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even in the original series, androids figured mm-hmm. uh, prominently in at least one episode, right? Uh, I'm Mud. Right. Um, well, and Requiem from Methuselah. Requiem from Methuselah, yeah, right. of course. Better example, even. Um, implants and uh, cybernetic augmentation, the idea of creating a Superman, quote unquote, was something that uh, you know, the original ex- series explored quite a bit with Gary Mitchell and um, and Charlie X and right. other episodes. But I think that the uh, yeah the fact that by the 1980s uh, we began to recognize that these things are going to exist in the not too distant future. Uh, nobody imagined in the 1960s that we were anywhere close to sending somebody with some mild telepathic ability out to the edge of the galaxy and turning him into a superman. <laughs> but, on the other hand, by the 1980s, we absolutely understood that it would be possible at some point to interface a human brain with um, a memory chip, a CPU, uh, provide mm-hmm. a brain with potentially the processing power of a computer, the, uh, you know, the memory of a, of, a, you know, of a hard drive, and so forth. Um, 
And so that was clearly an area that uh, was ripe for exploration. You know, the time was right for a show to engage with those kinds of questions. And, of course, one of the most brilliant creations of Star Trek The Next Generation was the character of Data. Right. Uh, brilliantly played by Brent Spiner, who, who really brought to life um, the, the, the ethical and moral dimensions uh, of these kinds of advances, and, you know, specifically the measure of a man. Does, uh, does an artificial life form, mm-hmm. an android, uh, at what point does it become um, worthy of, uh, of having certain rights, uh, of having a, a say in, in how he or she is, um, is employed? Uh, can they say no? Not to be, not to be, uh, you know, humanistic about it, but we say human rights, life yes. form rights, or whatever. Right. Yeah. I know Rick didn't like the I, in memos. You see him not like to use the word sentient. Yes, yeah. <laughs> in dialogue, well, but that's what we're talking a, about. Well, sentient can mean a lot of things. It can just be as simple as something that's aware of its environment. Right, self-aware. My cats are sentient in the sense that they are aware of and respond to their environment uh, to the degree that they have a sense of self. I, I don't know. I think they probably do. Um, not the way that we do, but well, again, then you're on the so, spectrum like the exocomps. It exactly. was data looking out for a yes. junior v- a version of it. And himself. that's the thing: right. there is a spectrum, and 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 it's not always easy to see where the dividing lines are, and they, they might be very fuzzy. And that's where good good drama uh, is found in those in those fuzzy questions. That you know, the best stories, whether they're based on some interesting discovery in science or an ethical question about. Biology, genetics, genetic manipulation. The most interesting stories dramatically are not right versus wrong, but right versus right. Mm-hmm. If you can manipulate an embryo that is developing in a woman's womb um, and uh, make sure that it is not born with the disease like cystic fibrosis, I think we would all agree that that's, that's a good thing to do. Um, on the other hand, once you have that technology, what else can you do with it? And so by saying, well, that's a good thing to do and we should do it, well, you're also opening the door to a lot of other things right. that are not necessarily as clear-cut as you know, repairing a genetic illness before the baby is even born. So I find... The kinds well, of while we're stories. at it, let's like uh, raise a, uh, let's birth a race of eight foot tall basketball players. Yeah, I mean <laughs> that's a ridiculous thing, but well, that, you've opened the door to that. Absolutely. And where where is you know, where's um, the line? And you know, as David pointed out later in this memo, which people obviously can go on line and read, you could uh, genetically engineer somebody to be uh, a really fast runner, mm-hmm. to be really strong, to have reflexes that are you know far greater than an average human's. Maybe that's something you want to do for soldiers. Now, I think if you were to be genetically engineered and have those qualities and then forced to be a soldier, that's pretty clearly uh, some something we would all agree is morally wrong. Right. But if somebody has those abilities and you give them the option, uh, you can be a soldier or you can, you know, you can be a doctor, whatever you want to be. It's up to you. But you have this special ability. How would you like to use it? Well, that's a more interesting question. And was that the original intent? And somewhere along the way, the process was hijacked from the original yeah. benign right. choice. Right. right? Things can always change along yeah. the way once, again, once that genie's out of the bottle exactly. and, and keeping up with that. Well, look, we've got, I mean, it's interesting to me how a lot of these did get touched on. Um, genetic reconstruction, mm-hmm. whether it was an infected virus or an accidental, I'm thinking of the Tarchanins, you know, the ultraviolet 
oh, guys yes, yeah, on yeah. Next Generation that right. Jordy fell victim to. The yeah. genetic redesign. It, uh-huh. A little bit of what we were talking about yeah. got into with Bolana yeah. and Tom, the debate on Voyager yes. about what to do with yeah. whether their child would be born yes. all Klingon right. or minimize the Klingon yeah. DNA. Yeah. It was kind of thought-provoking. Um, I actually wrote a story, now that I think of it, for um, Enterprise called Extinction, where an alien oh, yes. race was yeah. um, not a successful an- a- episode, all things considered, but an interesting idea, <laughs> if I do say so myself, uh, which was that a species recognized, a sentient humanoid species recognized that it was um, uh, on the verge of extinction and there was nothing that they could do about it. And what they did is they left behind, they genetically engineered and left behind a virus on their world that would infect uh, a compatible species and recreate their race with the hope that, you know, some unknowing schmucks are going to come down here someday <laughs> and basically... Schmucks uh, in a barely baby yeah, warp five ship. And, right. uh, you know, and, and repopulate our species. And that was a kind of a fun idea. Um, and it was, uh, you know, again, something that was... I think any, everyone would agree, well, that's that's the wrong way to go about bringing your species back from extinction, but uh, it made for an interesting story. Right. Well, you know, synthetic and uh, androids, we were talking about data, obviously, yeah. but even uh, Questor, Gene's first yes. pilot, yeah. that kind of led to data. Right. Um, yeah, the, the computer uh, brain implants, well, on mm-hmm. the, you know, binars. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm thinking of Barkley, the the Cytherians. What yes, happened to him? Exactly for yeah, a brief the, the time. Super intelligence. Um, anyway, it's uh, you know it's interesting, but it, it it's another aspect to me where good science fiction, yeah. and even when you can portray it on a budget, cranking it out yes. weekly for Star yeah. Trek, um, you're bringing together the scientific frontiers. The ethical debates, yeah. and bang, here's a case where yeah. science is leading you right into great drama and not yes. fighting it. Well, and I think one of the reasons, maybe the main reason that stories like these are so engaging is because who wouldn't want to be stronger? Who wouldn't want to be smarter? Who wouldn't want to have a better memory? Uh, who wouldn't want to live longer? You know, I mean, sign me up for all of that stuff. <laughs> now, how that's done is going to be a big factor in whether or not I'd, I'd be first in line to get a brain implant that promises to double my IQ and, and give me an, an essentially perfect memory. And, and does someone else have the on-off switch yeah, or the master control? Is, and, do I have it? Or, but yeah. there are deeper questions beyond that. It's like, do I really want a perfect memory? I'm not sure that a perfect memory is such a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, some things I want to remember, there are some things that I would much rather forget, you know. Um, I wish I could do physics in my head. Uh, you give me the option of being able to, you know, solve Schrodinger's equation for some complex quantum mechanical system in my head. Uh, great. I think I would want that. But, you know, the, nothing is without consequence, right? So you've got to be very careful when you, uh, when you indulge in these kinds of fantasies about what could I do if I had, you know, X, Y, and Z capabilities. And, and that's why, again, we all think about those kinds of questions we all if we were offered eternal youth if we were offered this or that or the other yeah we'd all be tempted uh but i hope that most of us would think very carefully before uh telling q that we would accept it (laughs) sure make me immortal yeah 
Well, I wish I could bioengineer time right now so we could extend this conversation. But all I'm going to have to do is say, Andre, would you please come back and let's talk some more. Absolutely. Okay, Office, thanks so much for dropping by. My pleasure. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Additional production by Ken Ray. All of our documents and your choice to comment are available right there at Facebook, facebook.com slash The Trek Files. For more great podcasts, check out podcast.roddenberry.com. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. That's me at larrynimichek.com. Trek well, everybody. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.